Hello and welcome to The Nature Between Us, a podcast for all your eco-inquiries and musings. My name is Tessa, I'm an Aussie actress, voiceover artist and environmental master's student on a mission to demystify the big environmental issues of our time. Join me on my quest to find solutions and positivity from the wide variety of people working towards a more sustainable future. This podcast is recorded and produced on Bidjigal and Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I acknowledge the traditional owners and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. So this is episode number seven and the last one for 2020 which has been a bit of a bumpy year, but I think the one thing it's taught me is the importance of self-education, resourcefulness, and our connection with nature, which is something that today's guest and friend, Cyrus Sutton, knows all too well. Cyrus is a professional surfer, a documentary filmmaker, a permaculturalist, and DIY king. However, it's hard to reduce someone like Cyrus down to a couple of labels, in the same way that this episode isn't just about small-scale farming, the commodification of nature, or surf adventures in Russia, although that story is really crazy. (laughs) He is a deep thinker, and I've always enjoyed reading and connecting with his thoughts on ecology, sustainability, surfing, and the way in which humans can have a more meaningful and rewarding existence within nature. Cyrus grew up in the OC in California and has spent the majority of his life on the road, creating his own curriculum, surfing, living consciously, learning from others, making environmental documentary films, building his DIY surf platform Cordero TV and creating a reef safe and chemical free zinc company Manda. Since the COVID shutdown, though, he's planted roots outside of Portland on a beautiful property and he's putting his decades of regenerative farming and permaculture knowledge to good use. This is one of the longest chats I've released, but for good reason. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Can you hear me? Oh my God, I can hear you. Okay, awesome. I love that you have to drive literally to the top of a mountain to get a connection sometimes. I think that's pretty cool. Very off grid. Oh, it's so funny. There's actually construction going on right now and they're putting in fiber optic cable. So I think in a couple of weeks, I'm going to have super fast Wi-Fi at my house. Fingers crossed. Oh, wow. But it'll be the end of an era. <laughs> For sure. Um, well, thanks for your time, Cyrus. I, I guess a nice place to start would be um, just to hear about how you've been doing during COVID because I know you've been, uh, you've been spending a lot of time on your property just outside of Portland uh, at home with your goats and your pigs and your beautiful veggie garden. Um, how's everything going for you? It's been going well. Yeah, just um, <clears throat> at the beginning of lockdown, my mom broke her leg and I was down in Southern California and I got a job and um, yeah, we just had that like tough discussion together that I would come up here and uh, she has a really good community down there. And yeah, so I've just been up here and powering on projects on the land. Um, It hasn't been a bad spot to be considering the state of things. For sure. Especially here in the U S yeah, for sure. And how, I think the last time I spoke to you, you had the, you had a great system running between the goats and the pigs and the, the mulberries or the, 
there's a berry that's a weed up there. I think it's the mulberries. And you were like getting the pigs to dig out the roots and then the goats were going to eat the fruit and you had this whole system running. Yeah. Yeah. Like up here, the, the two most invasive plant species are um, Himalayan blackberry and English ivy. Um, both probably brought here with the best of intentions, but have completely covered the the landscape and uh blackberry is just such a perfect plant weapon on the on the on the landscape and that it just has such incredibly deep strong roots uh such a fortified um, vine with crazy thorns and really delicious berries that humans and birds love to eat and then you know broadcast the seeds and spread so it's a formidable opponent (laughs) (laughs) but not formidable enough for your for your pigs to to take hold and do their job yeah the the goats are really good at um uh eating them down and and taking out the leaves which are like the solar panels for the plant and then the pigs um i got a rooting variety american guinea hog and so it's uh the pigs just you know root looking for grubs and worms on the hillside and they um uproot the the blackberries to the point where they're pretty easy to to remove by hand so that sort of paddock grazing them on a low impedance electric fence and and strategically moving them around the landscape has really helped get everything dialed in and and uh they're fun to hang out with too (laughs) yeah they look pretty cute was that your intention when you bought them was to kind of have them as as like a working pig yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been pretty thrilling to learn about the power and utility of farm animals. Um, and working with them has really unlocked like this belief in small-scale agriculture to solve the problems that we face. Um, I kind of grew up with real like this disnified, fetishized view of animals and in, in the sense of like, oh, farm animals, they're there to make you know, you're you're supposed to slaughter them, harvest them, use their milk, and um, it's sort of this feels like a uh, just a re- reductionist um, view. But now, um, as I've learned over the years, that that's just this amazing cooperation that can happen between animals and and humans, and um, they get a good life and what they want to do, and um, you can move mountains, you know, together. So it's been. Mm-hmm been pretty cool i got the goats to eat the blackberry and other weeds because they don't like grass i mean they they're almost like landscape architects or surgeons on the landscape the way they move and you're just to take a weed whacker i mean you can do a certain amount but especially the rooting with pigs i mean i a lot of my property is rocky and uneven terrain and i got quoted for eight grand us um for a crew to help because it's backbreaking arthritis inducing work and um you know, the pigs are, you put them on a spot that's I mean, a very small, like a pretty sizable little chunk of land and they, they'll tear it up in two to three days and, you know, move on. So it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. And I'm sure they'd love doing it as opposed to the, the workers. <laughs> Probably not so much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when did your, when did your love for permaculture kind of begin this, this very like cyclical gardening kind of system um yeah i think it's uh i I first got turned on to it through about 15 15 to 20 years ago um a friend of mine was a permaculture teacher and i went on a surf trip with him and his 
and his wife to Mexico and they gave me the permaculture design manual um, by Bill Molson and Dave Holmgren. And um, my dad grew up being, uh, grew up in Southern California and became a landscape architect and taught organic gardening in San Diego in the 60s and 70s. And so I grew up kind of with a garden and in the back and this, this idea of, um, you know, growing food at, at your own home and the, um, the synergistic sort of side of permaculture really helped prepare me to think about like flowing systems and how different sections of a property can be implemented to synergize with others to create less work. Um, I took my permaculture design course, I think six, six years ago, and so much of the course resonated that I know just how crucial this way of thinking is to pull anything off when you're actually on land. You know, there's like a thin line between making a harmonious life and creating endless turmoil and toil. I guess, you know, and then after my course, I spent time with different farmers and homesteaders and permaculture practitioners like Jeff Lawton, just sort of saw how they implemented those synergistic tenets onto their landscapes. And I think the overwhelming takeaway was just to go slow and be present and actually observe and interact with your place before firing up your ego and like, getting a ton of work done and uh, like any endeavor on the land takes um, so much that I think as humans it's like we become inherently myopic when um, we're working on anything so taking breaks and reflecting and returning to like a positive creative flow with uh, with a design with a design focus is can save so much um, just like Sisyphus, just like pu- pu- pushing a rock up against a hill, you know? Yeah. And we've also kind of been, we've, we've kind of been lulled into this false sense of how quickly things grow and what it takes to actually grow a piece of fruit or a vegetable because it's so readily available in the supermarket and you just don't have that, like, that real, like, understanding that, okay, this probably takes like a month truly to grow. It needs water and it needs sunlight and that's, that's the whole process. So it seems nice that permaculture kind of allows you to step back and go, oh, I can see how this all should be working. Yeah, for sure. I think the biggest thing I've learned is like good farmers grow soil, you know, and, and healthy soil create strong plants and that, that pests and disease don't attack and or at least not nearly as much at the rate if you don't get your soil right. And also just like planting a lot more than you need so pests and animals can eat too. And, I'm really grateful that I got a property in an area with a lot of native food for animals, like rich alluvial flow soils, lots of water, south-facing northern hemispheric slopes, you know, which is different than where I grew up. And, uh, but overall, I just learned that, you know, plants, they love to grow, like things want to live. And so it's, (laughs) it's not that hard. And I think when I first moved here five years ago, I planted an orchard about I think 40 fruit trees have taken, I think I planted about 60 and I've coppiced the, the ones that weren't doing as well. But again, with that, I, that idea of planting more and kind of letting nature select, which is what we do in gardening or farming. We obviously like plant more seeds than the actual plants that we eat from. And they've been so prolific. Now in year five, I harvested like 65 pounds of figs at one time and probably another 30 sporadically. Wow. The grapevines, I did a 35 pound harvest. Um, and then I've just been also munching on them all summer and the berries and, you know, all those kinds of 
anything from a tree or from a vine is so incredible. And I'm really interested in learning more about um, tree-based agriculture and tree-based um, staple crops like acorns in the south and up in the northwest and the actually northern regions of all of America, the American chestnut. There's a saying that um, a squirrel could swing from branch to branch or jump from from canopy to canopy from Maine, the Far East, all the way to Washington at one point. Wow. And they have a really high carbohydrate nut um, that could really alleviate a lot of our food security issues and the intensive nature of root and um, staple crops like corns and things like that that are annuals and require prepping and yeah, just a lot more of an intensive uh, way of, of creating our base caloric needs. Yeah. So yeah, just getting those things in first, I think has really been huge. And then now diving into, cause this is the first time I've watched the last rains of spring and the first of fall on my property and having that time and not having to travel has allowed me to get into the more intensive, inherently extractive uh, vegetable farming and things like that, that take a lot of inputs because they take a lot out of the soils. Mm. Um, and and then just looking, obviously working with animals has been amazing and just kind of tapping into that. Anybody, I think anybody who has a dog or a cat knows that there's this like primal relationship that's baked into our DNA um, in a way of both in humans and in the animals that, that we've learned how to coexist and kind of find this really easy free flow relationship that I think is sometimes hard in this modern society to find with other people because things have gotten to be so complicated and just like watching the goats for example like just do what they do and they're so loving like like I, I think I got pretty lucky but I have like I have goats that would rather cuddle and just kind of hang out and get scratched and <laughs> your goats and are so cute <laughs> I was actually yeah. hanging out with some so. goats yesterday and I realized they have pretty crazy kind of slit irises in their eyes and I had no idea yeah. but I googled it and it's it's they're designed like that because they're prey animals as opposed to predator animals. And so that allows them more peripheral vision for, um, to kind of like be scoping out if they're about to be attacked while they're grazing. Totally. It's, it's, it's why all, all herbivores have eyes on the sides of their heads and yeah. Um, yeah. Goats, can, those slitted pupils, they can be down chomping on the grass because they need to eat so much in a day. They need to convert so much biomass into calories that they, they have to be able to also see what's going on with their heads down. Oh, so crazy. Made me, made my heart kind of break. I'm like, Oh, they're just prey animals. Like that's like, they've been like rele relegated into two groups. It's like predator animals and prey animals. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, and having a pet that's a predator, like a dog and then having prey animals. has been an interesting. Dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. So I want to, uh, before we move on to kind of the before COVID era of your life, I wanted to touch on a doco um, that you made, I think it was in 2016 called Island Earth, because it kind of sits in this world of permaculture and sustainable agriculture. And um, that film, yeah, looked at, at those things and, and the role of organics and small scale farming. I was just um, curious what, uh, what you learned from from making this film and why why it was such an important topic for you to share? Yeah, well, I, I learned about the how the Polynesians effectively colonized 
a lot of Polynesia, the Polynesian archipelago and Hawaii in, in particular, through a handful of plants and applied them to a highly advanced understanding of watershed management. Um, the process of making the film, I guess, also taught me the importance of focusing on media um, that we create being um, solutionary rather than tearing down problems. Um, Cause you know, like the development of better solutions will naturally draw people to them and focusing too much on problems is just a divisive energy. Yeah, I agree. So what were the, what were the key takeaways from this film? I mean, you've already kind of spoken about the importance of uh, small scale farming, but was it, um, was it more of like a, cause it's set in Hawaii. Um, I'm just curious if it was, if it was more of kind of a, a rampant issue there that, that needed to be kind of, I don't know, dealt with. Yeah. I mean, essentially the Polynesian islands or the Hawaiian islands in particular, um, they have incredibly sort of inherently poor soils because of the temperature year round. Um, it just create, it makes organic matter break down so quickly. So they, the plants require this amazing amount of uh, foresight in terms of nutrient flow and effluent that, that they need. Trees are a little more hardy, but the perennial staple crop of the, of the indigenous or the, uh, Native Hawaiian people was um, taro or kalo, and it they developed these amazing systems that caught um, water from the tops of their volcanic uh, mountains and cleaned and had a kapu or an edict um, against cutting down that forest because of its utility for purifying water, and then um, created these loi loi, which are these ponds on contour that would run from one to the other and carry effluent. So soil, the, the topsoil that was being created by the combination of microbiology and organic matter and would feed that um, into the ponds and these really um, slow moving areas that the, the, the taro could grow from. And then that flowed down the hill um, towards the ocean where a tsunami buffer of coconuts were planted and then fed, I, I mean, Back in the day, one of them, you know, one of the groups, I'm sure, realized that fish were coming out and feeding on, they're probably getting better catches when they were fishing from ponds that had, um, or lakes and, and rivers and streams that had a lot of dirt in them, sediment. Mm. So they created this ingenious system of these rock ponds that had gates and would entice smaller fish to come in and kind of cascade up to bigger fish and would create easy you know, kind of fish in a barrel fishing for them. And so that system was so refined and obviously there's so many nuances and they had to perfect it depending on the age of the island. And Hawaii, for example, is the oldest and has the, the deepest soils because the, the volcanic the volcanic earth had had more time to decompose. Um, and then, you know, somewhere like the big island mm. is much fresher and they had a different systems there, but they're, they're really ingenious. And, you know, we now live in an era of a, a global food system where things are grown in one area and then they're exported to another area to be cleaned and processed. And then they're transported to yet another area. And um, that creates inherent in insecurity in our food systems. And Hawaii is, was really a canary in the coal mine in that because agrochemical companies that we've been taught, um, despite the UN report every year showing us that 70% of the world's food is grown 
by small-scale farmers for their communities. Um, we've been taught since the Norman Borlaug-led um, Green Revolution post-World War II that uh, our food is, you know, needs to be grown by the government and by in, the, in a huge, just a huge on a huge scale. And the companies that have that have really taken over and controlled this inherently pest-ridden formula of of putting very specific um, monocultures of one kind of plant on an area and drawing in pests of all kinds um, and weeds of all kinds that are really just trying to heal the landscape and cycle those nutrients of something that it that nature seems as problematic you know there's nowhere in nature that there's just a kind of one kind of system um, uh, there are like uh, trees you know like forests that have a certain kind of, of, of plant but it's a there's a really abundant and diverse microbiology happening under the soils and we've pretty much looked at those in a sort of like a war like an industrial military industrial complex way of 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 problem solving and just tried to kill anything that wasn't calculable and measurable and so we've employed nitrogen-based fertilizers and all kinds of pesticides and um, because of the U.S.'s lax regulatory environment and Hawaii's three to four growing seasons the chemical companies moved in and were testing a lot of their GMO seeds that would get exported to the, you know, the the breadbasket, the central part of the United States, Iowa, Ohio, all those the corn king corn growing regions, and um, they would test these GMOs for pesticide resistance because a lot of the seeds now that we use are, I mean, I'm sure everybody knows this, but they they're basically just bread so that for a variety of things. And it's not just GMOs that are, GMOs are not just used for pesticide resistance, but the problematic aspects um, that the modern day Hawaiian population was was dealing with was um, a lot of pesticides being dumped onto their really fragile um, ecosystems and um, because of this testing. So it was, the, the documentary started out pretty simple. I just thought GMOs were, were bad and I wanted to raise awareness about big companies moving in and, and taking over uh, local resources. And um, it became a much more complex film as I learned about how the science of genetic modification diverges from sort of this military industrial complex model that we're in um, layer on top of that colonialism. And it's just a microcosm, I think of for everything that we're dealing with today. Which was a, which was a tough story to tell because it's it's pretty broad and uh, I, I worked to narrow it down and try to create a, a compelling story and try to be solutionary. I think um, the movement in general that I was a part of um, that was self-professed from the people on the ground there and also the film um, was that it I needed to focus uh, more on solutions because the problem was a lot of these testing fields were happening on poorer areas like west side of Kauai and the people who were most vocal and had the time to show up were more wealthy people on the north and east side of the island who really wanted to have things be pure as quickly as possible but not necessarily um, fleshing out the solutions so potential job loss potential you know loss of something before a more vibrant solution was uh was implemented and proposed so mm. yeah it's just i think it's a the whole thing was kind of an allegory for me of of looking at landscape and looking at where i wanted to live and um 
gave me a literacy on what kind of land um, would be a good investment for my lifetime and community. And um, also a cautionary tale about trying to tear down systems that we don't completely understand how to um, create solutions for. Mm. I love that you went into it thinking, or kind of went into it with like one idea of what the film would be and then it just blew up into this huge other thing. It's like a true investigation. Um, I think I saw... It was the... Sorry, go ahead. It was the level of... It was the level of time and money that I had, but yeah, I, I, I did my best <laughs> and I'm proud of it. I think it's yeah, a good film. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to watching it. I haven't yet, I must be honest, but uh, the trailer looks, yeah, it looks really phenomenal. There's another little clip somewhere I saw online where you said that when we eat food that isn't, you know, well-produced, uh, grown locally, uh, not organic, we pay for it three times. And I found that really interesting because you said you kind of, you, no, I'm going to mutilate this. Maybe you should tell me if you remember. Oh, yeah, no problem. Uh, it, we, we pay for it with the subsidies that are take, taken from our tax dollars. We pay for it in the, you know, transport and packaging, which can be thousands of miles for it to hit the grocery shelves. And we also pay for it in, all, in our health care. And I think right. in America and a lot of Commonwealth nations, our healthcare systems are what could potentially bankrupt our countries um, as we get more and more, um, um, yeah, just autoimmune diseases from things in our foods that are um, causing our cells to not communicate correctly. And I, I interviewed uh, Dr. Zach Bush um, this summer, and it was a really enlightening conversation because I, I got some pushback in Island Earth from. Uh, one party in particular who cited the um, glyphosate, um, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, which is most pesticides now, uh, or a lot of them are, are, are using that and herbicides. I, I use the term pesticides too. It's a, it's an umbrella for both insect and, and other plants. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but they are, um, glyphosate is considered to be pretty safe on the LD50, the reductionist sort of um, scientific um, measurement of toxicity. It is that's the LD50 is is used from everything from water to caffeine to um, anything um, as to how much you need to consume for it to be uh, lethal or, or poisonous. And um, glyphosate shows to be pretty um, safe, but when that that's testing individual cells and not the cell matrixes which communicate and he just really um dr bush really eloquently explained how a lot of you know problems that we're seeing in our environment and in our bodies have to do with the food that we eat and food can either be medicine or it can be um poison and yeah i think it's 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 something that not only for individual health and people who you know, whose lifestyles have have even become really self uh, health focused and self focused on in that regard, but also the strength of our communities and our governments and um, our nations. It's it's just it's something that returning to a more localized food production source is, would alleviate. Yeah, 
It's also kind of a bit of a catch-22, isn't it? Because the system has been set up now in a way that this kind of more local, organic production of food comes at a cost, which is a cost that you pay up front for better health and lower you know, medical bills later in life. But it's not a cost that you know, everyone can afford. Like it, it's, it's a privilege to, at least in Australia, go down to the local organic grocery or like you know markets and get get organic groceries like that is it's expensive you kind of can't really do an entire shop um at an organic grocer because it's it's at such a raised price yeah and what you hit on is is it touches on like the core dilemma i would say of first world nations that you have uh, especially one like america where you have um an increasingly uh, sort of concentrated well, um, wealthy class. So you have wealth is, is increasingly um, um, divided between haves and have-nots. And so you have a lot of these people who are so directly affected by the way that we grow our food, whether it's farm, migrant farm workers and the chemicals that they have to be in contact with, or it's um, the farmers themselves, um, or people who just don't have a lot of money who who were actually the ones who have the literacy and have the communities that could be really creating healthy food, but farmers have been really corralled in all over the world into these um, bigger systems which export that wealth and create you know um, in that exportation of the real wealth, which is food and clean resources, they tarnish them with um, this desire to make it on a very big level and um, and feed um, a profit-driven model and yeah, really corrupt those things into a, a lesser quality product for people who can't afford it. And solving that is is something that we just need to do and really address and and you know a variety of I think it takes all kinds of 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 ac- skills and acumens to to approach it, whether it's um, you know, actually through politics and looking at the way lobbying interests, especially in America, have um, proliferated through the laws that are passed. And then um, also just people getting out and doing it themselves and educating each other on, um, online if they were just in their local in their local areas by talking to one another. Mm. It's going to take a paradigm shift of that we've never seen as a, as a human race, as, as Zach Bush puts it um, so well, it's, we're going to need to very quickly reimagine um, how we live. And it's, it's very nerve wracking. There's so many problems in the world, but the way we eat uh, has been sort of sidelined into, Oh, the people who care the most are sort of the wealthiest people and they're out of touch, you know? And so it's, and the people who are working really hard are, you know, not seen, and it turns into this um, divided sort of class warfare. And we're going to really need to start seeing through that um, based on the science uh, of of soil health and where we're heading and toxicity, uh, proliferation of pesticides and climate change. Um, you know, if we can't, if we can't eat, then things are, uh, because we've poisoned our land and we've, we've poisoned our microbiome and we can't assimilate nutrients then um yeah the writing's on the wall so Mm. i think it's going back to your first question this summer has been an incredibly healing time for me to understand that it isn't 
impossible. Um, it's a lot harder in some ways than I thought, but it's also a lot easier. And I am super fortunate to have made a career out of basically building my own curriculum and learning a lot of things that are now sort of innate and subconscious to me about how to interact with landscape that um, have given me a leg up. Um, so I think that, you know, my work is going to be to to share that experience and um, the tools that I've learned to hopefully give people uh, a better chance at um, diving in themselves. Um, I'm not a politician, so I'm not going <laughs> to focus on the, the legalities or, or all that kind of stuff. But I think mm. that we can we can turn this around with the internet and this um, amazing information age that has you and Sydney calling me and Pacific <laughs> Northwest of America and talking to each other. And we'll be made only better by this new fiber optic cable. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I love that. I love that it's, yeah, you're kind of, you're looking at it from a solution base and, and going, this is what I, this is what I know and this is what I can share. And, and yeah. And speaking of reimagining how we live, um, you just said yourself that you've kind of created your own curriculum, which I really love because it just seems like a nice way to live. And um, before COVID, you, you kind of had a, a somewhat semi-nomadic life, spending many years living out of your van. I was, I'm curious what the draw cards were for that kind of lifestyle, how you ended up just saying no to a house and yes to a house on wheels. Yeah, gosh. I mean, uh, let's see. I think um, it really allowed me to reground myself in nature after so much travel. You know, it's like you get your head spun a bit by being in different places all the time and interacting with them and doing it for work was sort of uncentering. So I was able to focus, drive out to the desert or drive out to the mountains, refocus on a healthy routine and work on um, writing and things I was passionate about um, also allowed me to save money uh, in a real concrete way and and be able to afford the down payment on my property. So it was a way of of traveling to places that were nourishing and or I could have the time to flesh out the ideas that I had um, really were just pouring out while I was on the road and interacting with so many people. And it gave me that space to reflect and yeah, work on on distilling complex topics down to uh, more easily understandable uh, media that I would create. Mm. Yeah, there's something really nice. Whenever I go on a road trip, I feel so much more present in the world because I'm out of my habitual routine of, you know, the little whatever square meters that you just generally kind of like operate in outside your house where your work is, et cetera. But when you're on the road, you, you're really kind of being forced to be present. And if you're open to that, it's, it's, there's so many amazing experiences that can, that can come your way. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm fascinated with human intelligence and, and, and what evokes um, my best ideas and um, what, where what spaces that I'm most switched on and present in and it seems like when I'm living in a place in which I'm not interacting with my landscape and involved on a tangible uh, level that the quality of the things that I do in front of the computer uh, suffer 
And so the surrogate of getting on the road and watching miles hum by under your tires and, and seeing new sights and smelling new smells, I think activates that, that part of our brains that are, that, that switch on, you know, more, um, I think just verdant thoughts and, um, yeah, more, more abundant and cohesive narratives in our head that we can spin into whatever it is that we're passionate about. And, and it's been interesting being on one place and hardly leaving for eight months now. And it's, uh, maybe it's been six, I'm not sure, six, seven, eight months. And, um, I haven't had that need to leave because there, the adventure is just walking outside and there is so many zones that need attention and various depths of, of completion, um, that they're on that it's sort of like, I get that road trip by walking out my door now that I'm on land and interacting and yeah, tinkering away. Yeah. Your property looks absolutely magical. I feel like that would just be every day you leave your front door and you've got that big lake, um, which seems pretty close by. It looks amazing. Oh, that's the Columbia River. It's the largest watershed west of the Rockies. It's a three quarters oh. of a mile wide. And Sorry, um, I'm calling it a lake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. My property feels like it's going so slow. <laughs> um, I I I I hear from friends like you that you know it's it's like coming along, but it's just it's amazing how much work everything takes. And um, but I am super grateful to be surrounded by life and to be invited every day into like teaming up with it to do shit. <laughs> so nice. How do you think you'd go living in a big city? Would it ever work? Um, I think that as long as like, I'm open to anything, as long as I can engage with my surroundings in a meaningful way um, for others and contribute, you know, it's like, I, I think that that's when we really build community and we feel um, value and can cycle that value back um, into positions of service, um, that that's sort of where I find and we all find happiness. And I just haven't, um, I was never drawn to that lifestyle. I was much more drawn to nature early on. And so that's sort of how I found myself. And, but I think now that I've spent potentially the first half of my life in nature, I'm realizing that those things about nature are attainable anywhere. Um, And it was just that I grew up in a place in Northern Orange County where a lot of that area and community had been, call it industrialized, call it colonized, um, that it had become pretty homogenized and didn't really offer up the okay of, of, sensory experiences that we're just attracted to as kids um and that's sort of what led me down this path but yeah i'm open to anything Mm. so as well as being a filmmaker and a permaculturalist you are also a professional surfer and you've spent a lot of your life traveling around the world finding waves You've surfed in heaps of unique locations such as Norway, Cuba, Barbados, Peru. But there's one that really stood out to me, (laughs) Russia. No idea that there were waves in Russia. That was like, what? Who surfs in Russia? Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, talk me through that experience. (laughs) 
Yeah, that was a wild, wild couple trips. I went, um, Keith Moy invited me on a trip, oh gosh, six, seven years ago. And um, I went with Chris Burkhardt and a number of other pro surfers. And we, they, Chris and Ben um, had this surf blog called well, Ben Weiland, who's become Chris's sort of right hand man filmmaker, um, had this surf blog back in the day called Arctic Surf that he would comb through Google Ma- Google Earth maps and find lineups from satellite imagery. And he found this wave in in, uh, in Russia. And um, yeah, it looked pretty perfect, eh? And we, so we then had to work backwards from navigating the infrastructure. And it's um, it was Kamchatka, which was where the Russian military launched all of its nuclear subs during the Cold War. I don't know if you've ever seen like Hunt for the Red October, but that's where Sean Connery's fictional character was based out of. And it had only been opened up to the public a couple, a few decades ago. Uh, it was just sort of a military lockdown compound north of Japan and um, sort of not that far, not that many miles from Alaska. And it was this really sort of like cinder block city, small town, or I guess decent sized city of Petrolovsk in the middle of this giant wild forest filled with bears and all kinds of creatures. Um, sort of like a primordial forest, very not super touched by man. And so our challenge was to get out of the city and actually find waves. And it required military vehicles because of the poor state of all the infrastructure. The roads were potholed and so we took a tank and it's like military, <laughs> not a tank, but like a military transport vehicle that felt like a tank because I'm not having been in the military and don't know the difference. Um, but we just like went down all these crazy roads and, and found this wave that actually Tom Curran had, had flown into in, in um, the search series that he made with um, Rip Curl and Sonny Miller um, back in the day. And it was a fun wave and we got some good stuff in the can in terms of surf action for the for surfer magazine and and then we went on this mission on it on a helicopter this ex-military helicopter that our tour our tour guide who kind of cooked and did everything like kissed the ground every time we would touch down because i guess we learned afterwards that so many of those planes fail with different wealthy fly fishing and hunting expeditions and um so we anyway we touched down and we saw this found this amazing or we 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 didn't find i mean they had found it and we touched down on this amazing clear stream filled with silver salmon um but the waves were really small i mean they were like six inches just peeling off like a mini g land wow and um we all fished and keith crushed it and caught i think three big silver salmon and there was this guy this super cute old man um in this little disheveled cabin and he lived with his wolf dog and I guess his story through our translator, he was paid um, to watch over the river mouth because of, because of poaching. And um, there's a lot of money to be made um, with the salmon eggs um, uh-huh. selling those to Japan. And, and um, you know, a lot of people there are pretty, pretty have pretty hard lifestyles and that amount of money can really help their families. So, Anyway, he was there and it was just this idyllic setting. And um, I kind of vowed to go back because I just thought it would be so cool to surf a perfect left in the middle of this wild place and be the first one to surf it. Yeah. And uh, 
so I organized a trip with the Surfers Journal um, a couple of years later when there was this march of hurricanes going eastward across the Pacific, which, you know, like the, the prevailing storm systems go the opposite of the Northern Hemisphere. They go east to west. And, but when late summer, the hurricanes go against the grain, and um, which is so important for that part of the world because most of the storms form and then go out to sea over the winter and it's incredibly cold. So you really need a strong typhoon to create amazing waves. And we tracked all these, these, um, these typhoons, cyclones, hurricanes, whatever you want to call them. And, um, one looked like it was hitting. And so I shotgunned a trip and got my sponsors to fork out like 10 grand for this helicopter and, um, flew in with my girlfriend at the time and my homie, Dylan Gordon is an amazing photographer and we touched down with got all our like camping supplies and bear proof fencing and or not I wouldn't call it bear proof but like electric fencing that's supposed to deter bears and we landed on the place and it was it was pumping there was some waves uh the swell was dying we'd gotten there about six hours late probably mm. and um which you know it takes about 36 hours to get there <laughs> so um it wasn't perfectly timed but we did meet a swarm of mosquitoes that was so thick you could barely see through it and the guy who was there was sort of mysteriously gone and replaced by this other guy who was barely functioning and there was also a camp of poachers there Uh. and so when the helicopter left us we were basically in this huge poacher camp who had cut their lines because they thought we were military or government because uh, don't, you don't see a lot of helicopters. Their only way of getting in and out of these places is through snowcat in the spring and fall. Um, there's not good enough roads. So these guys had built, you know, their whole operations and tensions were high. I think that there were definitely discussions of what to do with us. And yeah. they had to learn a little bit about us to know um, how they were going to solve their problem <laughs> and uh, ended up. Um, you know, they offered sort of a peace thing in the very beginning and came the first night and offered us a shotgun because they said there's bears here. And, you know, the Kamchatkan brown bear is bigger than the grizzly bear. And perhaps, yeah, so it's, um, so there was that. And luckily my girlfriend, Anna, had already gone to sleep when I got that news. She never told me if she'd heard that interaction. Um, Scary. But so, yeah, the first night. So the first night we were dealing with that and then um, got a little more waves in the morning and then pretty much just sat around and we were going to wait. There was another swell coming, but the reality of that experience of being so far removed from any culture that I knew of or bioregion um, and being in potentially what could have been a life-threatening situation. I mean, you know, not, not bringing, um, you know, a prana model, like a beautiful woman to a late summer camp with a bunch of ex-military six foot five Russians. Um, Mm. You know, it's like, it's just, it was like, wow, this is really interesting. So this is now, first of all, I'm under equipped to be doing this kind of a mission in terms of my, I think anybody would, (laughs) but um, in terms of my skills and, and is this what I want to be doing with my life and putting in, especially when I'm, bringing in responsible for other people's lives. So mm. that 
really made me want like cooled my jets on adventure travel for surfing and focus on yeah just uh, how i focus on cultivating a way that i could effectively contribute to the world and it was you know through surfing and traveling it's just incredibly incredibly humbling you just realize that people are so amazing and talented and resourceful and those poachers were amazing people you know all of them and they were doing what they had to do and they treated us with kindness even though they didn't have to and um it just makes you realize like what am i doing so i'm actually like going spending all this fuel going to these places and i'm at the end of the day i'm writing an article but i'm also um making media for a clothing company to sell things in china as part of like a marketing campaign like is this is this my life and and does this feel why i'm here like like the reason is this my purpose you know so Mm. that sort of cool yeah like i said um yeah sort of (laughs) ended those desires of wanderlust that i had yeah yeah that i desired as a kid which you know you grow up in in an urban area and you find waves and they're these incredible complex patterns that you're trying to decipher and they're giving you all these amazing insights into life and feelings and uh, in terms of dopamine and of riding waves and negative ions and then you see the model for like oh how can i do that for my whole life and then you see this path in orange county it's like the birth of the surf industry in the united states just like the gold coast in in um, australia and sydney it's like you just like you're like oh I, I have to be a professional surfer i have to get really good and then these clothing companies are going to sponsor me and then i'll be able to do this all the time like <laughs> sign yeah. me up right and then yeah and then go through that whole thing and you realize okay like this is what it's actually about and is that what I, kind of world i want to leave to my kids like do i want my kids to grow up to be pro surfers too and their kids and what kind of world you know am I contributing to if that's the lifestyle that I espouse yeah it is yeah it's a bit of like a um a compromise because you you fall in love with this thing which is just so connected to the ocean and to weather patterns and to adventure and connection with landscape and our environment but then, like you said, to continue that, to be like, this is so special. I want to do this for my whole life. You kind of have to compromise potentially like some of your values or things that you, that made you fall in love with surfing in the first place, which is, you know, wanting to protect that ocean or that, you know, coastal areas or whatever it may be. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. When I, when I just described you as a professional surfer, I mean, obviously you are, but yeah, that label kind of, it does come with some uh, other kind of connotations that, um, that I, that I hope, I think now that's starting to shift, you know, I think it's, it's possible to be, um, you know, aligned with brands that have ethics and that are out there, you know, trying to do better things for our environment as opposed to just sell a bunch of t-shirts with a, with a brand on, on them. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think my experience with it and, and where I'm at with it, I hope doesn't come across as being a judgment of anybody and my friends who do. I have tremendous respect for people who um, are able to take the experiences that they learn around the world and 
enmeshing in different cultures and um, sharing something as pure and simple as riding waves and, and, you know, just understanding the pattern literacy. I was surfing out in the past at the past in Byron with uh, Jeff Lawton, who some of your audience might know, but he's probably pretty widely considered to be the foremost uh, orator and potentially practitioner. It's hard to say one person's better at that permaculture than another, but of, of permaculture um, because permaculture is so bioregionally dependent, but he's an amazing guy and he's a surfer too. And he lives in the hinterlands of Byron and has the permaculture research Institute and puts out amazing educational films. Um, and uh, he was saying while we were surfing, you know, that surfing's about pattern reading. I mean, you're able to anticipate the best surfers are able to anticipate a fraction or even a whole second of what a wave is going to do by their subconscious time that they've spent in the water and understanding what undulating reflections on the water and, and understanding the bathometry of the ways that the waves break and um, understanding swells and, and winds and that, that, that allows them the foresight to adjust their, their weight on their rail or the way that they're going to approach a wave and pick their line. Um, and that's the utility of that for so much more in life. It's so incredible. And I think I was just too much of a sensitive nerd to like really get into the lifestyle, to be honest. <laughs> um, and, uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are just really love being on the road all the time. And, um, and yeah, it's, I think, uh, it's, it's, it's an awesome it's an awesome pursuit and there are companies that are doing a better job. And I think that there's also opportunities to teach surfing and to expand our culture and frame our, our pattern literacy that we learn through surfing into um, less of a subculture um, closed off sort of club in more of a, uh, an access Zen art, if you will, of identifying presence and um, mm. an appreciation for the details of life. Yeah, I totally agree. So I think it's a great portal for all those things. Yeah, that's really well said. I want to go back a little bit further now to I read online, <laughs> been reading a lot about you, <laughs> um, that you you um, you made your first. Your, your first film, Riding Waves, when you were about 19, and that was when you were on a surf trip, but you got an untimely staph infection uh, that made you kind of put down your surfboard and pick up a camera and, and start making films. And since then, you've made a number of other films, um, a lot of surf films, one Stoke and Broke, Stoked and Broke, which I thought was really great. It's kind of life on the road without much money. But in more recent years, they've kind of your films have kind of um, erred towards becoming more socially and environmentally conscious, such as the one that we've discussed, um, Earth Island, and another one called I Am This. I'm curious if this shift was kind of a natural progression for you, or something that you actively thought, I want to start making films more about environmental and social issues. It was at this point that Cyrus's phone ran out of battery and he had to drive home and reconnect via the satellite. So if you can hear a difference in sound and the quality, that is why. Yeah, I don't know. I just always made things harder on myself by not just sticking to um, one thing. Uh, I think 
the idea of making documentary films that was untethered to the traditional sort of action pornography that is surfing was something that was scary and seemed like would be really difficult to do, but definitely in all, in, in all the surf films that I've made, it was, they were really, um, the surfing was an excuse to explore a deeper theme about people and, and the environment. And so, you know, riding waves was about, um, just the spirituality of, of surfing and the different modalities. And that was my first one. And then Stoked and Broke was about gentrification um, in Southern California. And Under the Sun was about the commercialization of surfing. So after, after making, I think, Under the Sun and Stoked and Broke, I was just like, I don't want to dress it up anymore and do a surf film. I want to just go, go right at something that I was interested in. And from there, I've, I think... I don't know. I, I've pursued, I've pursued films that have been sort of less about that, like having to bring, I don't know, for me, filmmaking is such a, it's, it's such a complicated endeavor to keep somebody's attention for so long. And if you have sort of this seemingly um, forced or, uh, unnatural element like surfing that you're just trying to insert in there to give you know to fit into a genre it just felt like training wheels um so yeah i, I cast those off with island earth and then um was able to find commercial work that you know with different companies that wanted to tell stories um that were less brand forward and that's sort of the, the world that I've been in ever since. Yeah, it's cool. It's like you put out what you wanted to do and then people kind of, you know, like it, it's like you put out the law of attraction or like you put out, you put out to the world what it is that you're interested in and it kind of attracts um, similar, yeah, similar work. Yeah, I never thought about that before because I was so headstrong and confident in my in all my follies, you know, and all my mistakes, I think I just had this unwavering self-belief. And as I've gotten older and um, had become more vulnerable to life, it's sort of, I realized that it really does, I think, for people just starting out or who want to look at doing a career that they really love, it, it takes a lot of confidence and faith and hard work to, um, build a career out of doing so and, and honestly privilege like i was able to focus on what i wanted to focus on because i cut my expenses really low i was able to stay in a place in in um san diego for free um a lot of people have come along the way to um make it so that i didn't just have to chase commercial work and um so yeah i, I definitely um, especially with COVID times and being laid off, it's, it's a really interesting, uh, reflection of, you know, do, and, and I have a full appreciation and understanding that only comes from being in a, in a tough spot that so many of us are of like, yeah, I want to do all these cool things, but to prove the concept takes time and money that, you know, in our, in our systems aren't very available. And so we get into these, 
very commercial paradigms and are able to express and, and make art only to a degree, but then a lot of them has to um, meet the bottom line and, and, and fulfill uh, client expectations and people with money um, to allow us to hone our craft. And uh, yeah, for whatever reason, uh, things fell into place that I could, I could be more idealistic with what I did. And your filmmaking led to you um, creating a, a surf slash adventure blog called Corduroy TV, which, um, which doesn't really seem to adhere to any of those kind of uh, commercial paradigms that you're speaking to. It seems to kind of just be its own thing, um, which I really love. What was, um, what are, sorry, it's still, it's still around, Corduroy TV is still live. <laughs> what, what are the main objectives of this platform? Well, it's funny. It's we're we're undergoing an overhaul of the site and um, a re-penning of the mission statement and looking into different business models um, for it after doing a lot of research. And originally, it was something that was birthed through my documentary Under the Sun and this sort of coming of age, mid twenties realization that this. Um, the idea of being able to surf all the time um, is really tied to um, a heavy branding and lifestyle co-opting by, by uh, clothing companies. And that sort of creates a consumer spin on something that has the potential to be all the other things that we discussed. So I, I was excited about creating um, full of energy, um, and was excited and pulled together a team of guys that worked part-time on it for free. And we just made a, hundreds of short videos and thousands of blog posts around um, sort of a simpler surf experience that was incredible. Obviously going out and surfing and making your own stuff is like so fun. So all you had to do, and I was in this amazing old house and, uh, I basically, yeah, I was just able to uh, capture what was going on around me. Ryan Birch lived down the street um, and he was just shaping these amazing boards and we were riding Elias and shaping hand planes. And um, I just wanted to, to share that sort of in a pre-Instagram world. And so the blog was the way to do that. And, uh, and from there now as we're relaunching, um, as things got more and more, uh, busy in my life and everybody who was a part of it quarter fell by the wayside and we've only you know touched in now and then to writing blog posts with with less and less um, effort and I've with this time I've really wanted I've seen you know that I was pulled away by all these other jobs and and so reimagining what it looks like in today's landscape our, our new uh, mission statement is um, sharing fun affordable and rewarding solutions for thriving in wild times so it's just broader scope surfing is still a part of it and the categories are eat surf make and fun and um looking at everything from from homesteading to surfing to um you know all of the different conversations that are going on today about um climate and people and intersectionality between um, disenfranchised groups and, um, and policy. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, 
again, it's a it's relaunching to be more of a freeform canvas as to to explore the things that I'm really fascinated with, and and I'm fortunate to have a amazing network of friends who are experts in in a lot of these different things. So yeah, there's a section on the web on the uh, on the website that is called Surf Sufficient, and um, I mean, a lot of the website is, a, is, it looks like it's focused on like DIY, um, teaching people how to do it themselves. And you just said, you know, even then in the new, um, in the new kind of like mantra for the website is uh, of making things affordable, uh, which, yeah, I really love. And this, this section called Surf Sufficient is a series of videos that show people how to make, fix, reuse things around the surfing experience. Um, which is super cool because it empowers people. And um, my take on it is also that it's, it's in a way saying no to the commercialization of surfing, um, which, yeah, which I, which I really appreciate. Is, was that kind of um, a conscious uh, thought when making, you know, this section of, of the website? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it was, Again, it was about creating solutions as to, as opposed to having a blog that ranted about um, the problems, you know. And uh, I think that we live in such an advanced world where understanding how most things work is way above our pay grades. And I think that there's a conversation that can be had in shaping your own board in terms of surfing or, or doing anything like we've discussed getting back on the land that provides a value-based framework for how to interact with the world. And that's, I think the real gift of this sort of Luddite um, in its harshest connotation, um, simplistic kind of, of uh, way of approaching things, this trend that is, captured my generations and younger generations is this desire to uh, inform ourselves at whatever level that we are proficient at the core underpinnings of the highly advanced tools that we use today. And so practically speaking for surfboards, like learning how to shape your own surfboard or riding a piece of wood um, can influence a surfer to understand the core um, trim line and power centers of waves and also how by so many fuck ups that you're going to, you know, you're going to make by shaping your own board, what different rails and um, tail shapes and volume flows and outlines and rocker curves do um, and what, what the give and takes are there that an advanced shaper um, is balancing when they create a board. And mm. I think that that understanding creates a much richer surfing experience that allows us to enjoy, uh, Mac, like enjoy much more and a overtly, um, seeming, uh, or a, a seemingly simple act of just going out and surfing. And that it was a bit of a reaction as well to my travels and seeing that things that go viral uh, online are oftentimes sensational, like a, like a helicopter trip to Russia or surfing the biggest wave in the world or all these things that are 
really resource intensive. And we look at with FOMO or not FOMO, but um, some of us FOMO who have the ability to do that, but um, just sort of maybe not making us uh, feel as good about ourselves of just going in the water and in the ocean and enjoying that. So mm. I, I think, yeah, like anytime we can strip down something to its most basic thing, we realize that even that is incredibly hard and it makes a simpler life feel much more fulfilling in a time when life can, can seem pretty pointless when everything's been done and it's been perfected at a level that we can't meaningfully engage. For sure. Make the simple life great again. <laughs> Someone needs to put that <laughs> on a hat. <laughs> <laughs> what's up with that yeah, that, yeah you're so you, you hit the nail on the head with that that really resonated the the way that um i mean it's not just in surfing it's in a lot of things it's kind of this big divide and putting certain things on a pedestal and it and it really is just to to sell an idea or sell a lifestyle so that certain uh companies can make a lot of money from kind of yeah making something unobtainable like that helicopter ride in uh russia or you know whatever it may be it's yeah it's pretty crazy when you think about it like that yeah it's aspirational marketing you know whether it's like the young woman in a bikini that we had a crush on in high school or, or it's this crazy wave it's 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 attractive and i think um it's seductive and advertising mm. and marketing for so long have been the art of seduction yeah that kind of leads pretty naturally into something else that I wanted to get your opinion on, which is the kind of the recreation of nature for pleasure slash commercialization. Uh, things like wave pools. Where do you, where do you sit on those? What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, the recreation of nature, I think is such a deeper <clears throat> conversation that also harks back to our national parks and the way that we, <clears throat> have commodified and, and, and reduced nature. And um, it goes to land management and creating um, these like in America, these incredible national park systems, which, which have a lot of utility in introducing people from urban areas to a landscape that is really a petting zoo of, of what it once was. Um, and also this outdoor sort of Instagram hashtag going an adventure culture, which also has utility for creating this amazing outlet for people to, you know, like you were talking about, like getting on the road even or seeing something new and, and being enlivened and taking that back, that fresh energy back to our lives, which are, we, we, I think we can all feel, and most of us can agree that are unbalanced. Um, but, you know, I think that the wave pool is in essence, a search for, um, a performance side of, of the sport that is, um, you know, again, about doing something at a really high level. And I think that there's with everything, and I'm sure Kelly would agree or anybody who's developing these parks, there's a good and the bad side to everything. You know, and I think that there's there's an amazing uh, amazing quality to perfecting and taking out the variables that 
that we have to endure and read and decipher as surfers to make a good ride. When you take those out, you're able to focus on body mechanics and you're able to focus on progressing the sport to a level that can then create even more um, unbelievable feats. Uh, and I think that that is spectacle and it's a testament. It, it, it creates a narrative of excellence of, of human, it, it expands our idea of what humans are, are, are capable of. Um, and I just hope that that layer of, of spectacle and excellence can funnel back towards a self-belief in people of all races, um, countries and backgrounds to engage in our world in a way that doesn't have to be inherently problematic and reduct and destructive, but that we can trust ourselves as a species to be co-creating with nature because we're going to need our population. We're going to need every person on earth in some way engaging in, in re re-indigenizing and re, you know, relearning all of the bioregional literacy that has been lost over the last few centuries due to the industrial revolution and our lack of, of need to, to know our landscapes. And we're going to need to take all the creativity that we have and all the athleticism and um, yeah, physical prowess. And we're going to, we're going to yeah, tra- need to transform in um, where we are. So this is a big time for humans to not ridicule each other and espouse a narrative that is, humans are bad for the planet. You know, we need to buy our way into sustainability. We need to um, live smaller. I think it's, it's a time that we need to pump each other up and get very curious um, and be very uh, proud. But in that, in that pride, um, focus on humility as as paradoxical as that might sound. It's we have to believe in our own skills in the areas that we're lacking most because we've lost so much literacy and um, that, yeah, we need to, I think, just focus on those solutions and and it's going to take it in every area because what works in my area isn't going to work in Australia. What takes what's going to work in Australia isn't going to work in Southern California. Mm. And so it's, Got to be a hyper-local um, reimagining, and uh, yeah, I think that's gonna. I think we're gonna have to do that, and it's gonna be less painful if we do it with stoke and optimism. Uh, so that's a really roundabout way of avoiding your question and bringing it back into something that I <laughs> wanted to talk about. But I, uh, I, I don't focus on. I try not to focus my energy with all the negative stuff going on especially or potentially negative stuff going on in america yeah i try to i'm trying to rewire my brain for seeing any problematic area like a weed would um weeds come into damaged landscapes to repair them with their deep cap roots and pull nutrients to and then die for other plants so it's like how can we see this anything as an opportunity right Mm. Um, and that's what I'm trying, that's at least what I'm trying to do. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Nice. 
you yeah you're really good at communicating ideas and i guess my next next question is kind of about science communication uh and what your thoughts are on the best way to uh share uh these kind of like sustainability solutions with people i hate to like bring up social media but it is you know it's a tool and it's it's a platform that mostly uh everyone's on um so you know it is a great space to share these kind of uh forward thinking solutions what what have you learnt over the last couple of decades on on your experience of yeah sharing these solutions yeah i mean <clears throat> we live in crazy times with with social media where it's like our attention span is being monetized and our our the limits of our brains and our our proclivities towards addiction are being exploited. So I think that does need to be said. And, um, but I think, you know, considering all of that, it's, it's also that, like you said, it's this incredible opportunity to um, spread grassroots ideas that aren't, um, you know, forever the me media was controlled by a lot of money you know, to make a video or to have anything get out there to the masses, even the printing press that required capital. And now if we can really check our own use of the platforms and, and audit how myself, I'm really guilty of this for sure. Like I watched when social media first came online, I was very much um, in the driver's seat. I saw it as this really weird ludicrous thing of having to like share about your life i mean how self-indulgent and um self-important is that and and that's how it felt and but and i felt like i had a really like clear take on uh what how i was going to use it and but i think what i've learned to your question is to be positive um mm. and to a lot easier to share our opinions about something which may or may not be fully baked um, and those opinions um, have the ability to cause um, conspiracy theories and divide people because we all are coming from really different walks of life and i i think if we can endeavor to share our feelings and experiences um, and and try to use them and ask more questions than we're providing answers for or, or a space for reflection, that it creates solidarity um, as opposed to trying to get people to be on your side or use it as a, like the sharp end of a spear to cut other people down or uh, yeah. whatever it is. And what I've learned is any things that I was most sure about when I was a kid um, that were so black and white had be, had become so gray. And I struggle with that. I struggle with how to use social media in a way in which feels generous and um, constructive. Mm. Yeah, it's a platform that, that doesn't uh, lend well to the sharing of the nuances of many issues. Like it's not black and white. Nothing is black and white. Um, and yeah, it's interesting, but I think you do a good job at it because I think you kind of lead by example, which is the nicest way. It's not, it's not forcing, 
uh, or expecting anyone to be like, I'm on your side, but you're kind of living your life and you're sharing, um, you're just, yeah, sharing how, how you're, you know, regenerating your land or using your animals. Um, and it's, yeah, it's more of a lead by example kind of model, which I think is, yeah, a good way to go about it. Oh, thanks. I mean, I, I think we both are, you know, struggling with it. And um, I'm really excited that you're creating a podcast that's a platform for this and these lengthier discussions because you, you hit the nail on the head. It's like, it's how do you reduce something to a Twitter uh, phrase or a photo and however many characters are allowed on Instagram when we're living in a increasingly complex world and to invite people into that complexity uh, a podcast is such a great way to have two people talk to each other even if it's across the ocean and if more if more people would get on a zoom call or if there could be an app that just would pair up random people together and they could have a conversation and and we could all learn that we're we're all feeling things are a lot more similar than than we might think uh, the world would be a better place for sure oh yeah um i just have two more questions for you and uh yeah the next question is is pretty in tune with with what we're speaking about now and that's to do with martin shaw who's a mythologist that i know you are also a big fan of and he he speaks a lot about the power of storytelling and myth to to connect us with the beauty and our experience with with nature and landscape do you think we need more kind of abstract means of um of connection such as myths and folklore and and almost like a romanticization of our connection with nature um, to take people out of like the science and the fear based news that we, that we get fed quite a lot. Well, <clears throat> I think it's, I'm so glad you bring this up because it's, it's, isn't it beautiful that we can like, the difference between this podcast and a conversation and reducing something to a certain amount of characters is like, we're able to talk. And obviously mostly I'm talking cause you're interviewing me this time. Hopefully I can interview you soon, but um, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm able to sometimes, you know, go on and go on tangents about things. But when you're so curt about everything, which it seems like we live in that kind of world now and our attention spans are shrinking, the anecdote to that is pulling things back away from a black and white fact, a yes or no, and pulling it into the gray. And I don't know any, I don't know that anything has that ability or has yeah, that, that power to do more than this or more than these values based um, stories that are really, they're not, they're not about any one time or place. They're about, they're set, they're set oftentimes by design in a faraway land. And so that we don't, we're not allowed to attach to them in our brains of the patterns that we're trying to make sense of in our moment. And they're trying to speak to the struggles that we're all going through. And, um, you know, everything is a microcosm, right? Like it's, once you dive into any one thing that you thought was so simple, it's incredibly complex. And I think myths, um, the work of, of John O'Donohue, David White um, as well, um, those are 
poets and, and mythologists, modern mythologists that I really love, mm. <clears throat> are bring bring us to those places, and, and we realize that these struggles that are proliferating across the world are are our own individual struggles in this collective subconscious that we occupy, and um, all of the the problems. They're not. There's nothing to really fight against other than to live our lives in greater accordance with uh, a realization of our connectivity and, and, and align our energies in a way that are creative more than destructive. And I think we've been uh, coerced, but also um, led, led with an incredible amount of resources um, you know fossil fuels can do I don't know how many hundreds of hours of man man hours of work on the land um, it can either be creative or destructive and we've just gotten to this point now where information is being disseminated at a rate that it's it's maddening and, and returning to those simple uh, value-based conversations um, are super powerful and, and what I'm excited about is people creating those value-based conversations and nuancing them around their resources because there is both there is hope in going incredibly broad and incredibly um specific in at this time uh, mm. the broadness can be um or you know the things that religion um still offer and have been largely increasingly abandoned by our generation but um also just that that knowledge of you know in, indigenous people around the world through oral traditions mostly would share the culmination of their literacy around their landscape to to procure food fiber shelter medicine from their surroundings and that came from in the the technicolor complexity of those solutions um, we've completely steamrolled and and haven't honored or respected um, but they they combined this hyper local literacy with this super broad um, universal truths about connectivity and being um, being these animals with these big brains on this small and beautiful earth Mm. <laughs> big animals with big brains on this small earth i love that we definitely have kind of evolved to be creatures that live in our heads more than live in our bodies that's for sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. um i guess my final question is just what's next for you post COVID? are you you're gonna are you working on any other films or what's coming up for cyrus yeah, I'm, I'm just working on Corduroy. I've uh, got some gigs with different companies and um, doing a couple films. And um, yeah, it's, it's pretty uncertain for the first time in my life, which has uh, been a new exercise in from going to where my entire year was planned um, by the month or week to now having a blank slate. I'm just... Uh, taking a lot more time as I know a lot of us are is to, you know, what have I learned in this life and how do, what, 
what what worked and what didn't and what do I want to repeat and what do mm. I want to reinvent so yeah we'll see <laughs> how about you <laughs> other than this amazing podcast how's you are you still going to school or I am yeah still studying um they've actually extended my master's degree so it's it's they've added an extra six months which is really cool <laughs> um yeah so yeah i know i'm studying and uh still doing like lots of voiceover work and acting's kind of slowed down but um but that's okay it's just the nature of covid um yeah all those things are keeping me busy it's good and getting waves which is of course first and foremost objective in life <laughs> yes. <laughs> what kind of stuff are are you have, like stands out that you've learned that are that feels really expansive or has challenged some maybe past beliefs that you've had um i find that i've i've really connected with the um with the subjects that look at cities strangely enough i thought that i would be like oh you know all about like I don't, yeah, I, I was surprised by that. But I think, you know, I live in a city. I live in Sydney, which is, it's a very livable green city, but it's a city nonetheless. And um, so I suppose that's just like a reflection of where I'm, you know, where I'm placed. And and that kind of reflects back into like what you find interesting. Um, but yeah, I've done a couple of subjects that, that look at like how to make cities more livable and not only like regenerative, but like... Um, sorry not only sustainable but like regenerative that actually like give back more than what we take and I found I think to me like that seems like the most like such a if we can crack that it would it would make such a big difference because cities are so like they suck so much from the earth that if we can kind of like just you know at least like five of the biggest cities in the world if we just made them 100% um, like regenerative like that would just that would shift so much and so many people live in cities and I find the people that live in cities are the least connected to nature. And so if we kind of made cities more like, you know, there's the beginnings of like biophilia and like, you know, greening cities, putting trees around, making them like better with like water sensitive urban design, like all of those kind of things like sustainable architecture. And, um, but I think, yeah, like trying to make cities more of like this hybrid, um, like landscape and sustainable would be yeah would be really beneficial and and i i don't know i find it quite i found that to be quite interesting of everything that's cool yeah yeah um well i've sucked up like over two hours of your time so i feel like i must let you go no no problem it's been a pleasure thanks So that was my chat with Cyrus. Thanks for listening. Um, you can follow along all of his adventures on Instagram at Cyrus Sutton or, you know, check out Corduroy TV um, or you can watch any of his films. Uh, if you just search them online, you can get them on iTunes, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I, I thought that was such a great chat. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. You can follow along on the Nature Between Us Instagram at the Nature Between Us podcast or hit subscribe if you want to be updated every time a new episode drops. Um, I hope everyone has a great Christmas and a new year break. I will be releasing the next episode, episode number eight, around 
I don't know, mid-Jan, early Jan, see how I'm feeling. But uh, I look forward to look forward to producing more and releasing more great stuff for you guys next year. Ciao.